welcome again to our frequent podcast called Wear Many Hats, inspired by Ethan Hawkey. Throughout the year, I, David Punter, the Business Development Director for Hawkey Cleaning and Support Services, shall be interviewing prominent facilities management and procurement subject matter experts across a range of industry sectors. It is these people with their wealth of knowledge and experience that we hope will inspire the next generation of young professionals. Our objective is to share our guests' stories and experiences to help motivate, engage and inspire others into the industry. Through Wear Many Hats podcasts, we hope our listeners will gain new perspectives, insights and learn about strategies to develop their careers in the procurement FM business. It gives me great pleasure to introduce... Hi, I'm David Stevens. From... I'm a director of estates, facilities and capital development in a NHS trust. And I'm also a board member of SIBSI, the chartered institution of building services engineers. Thank you very much, David. We're pleased to have you on board. Um, what I'd like to do, without further ado, I'd like to jump into some questions a little bit about your journey in, uh, into the FM um, arena. So, what was your journey and how did you enter in your career in FM world? I think, first of all, thank you very much for inviting me to, to come along. This is a, a fantastic opportunity for those that are looking to either start a career in FM or are already working within FM. Um, my journey into FM, um, I suppose like a lot of people, it was quite circular. I, I left school uh, not having a particularly successful um, school career, if I can phrase it that way, and became an, an apprentice electrician. Okay. Um, and, and I realized quite quickly whilst working on it, my first project was working on a, a school development with no roof. And I enjoyed the first few months of it. And then when I was working in winter um, in a building with no roof on, um, and the people working around in their, their nice hard hats and suits looking very warm, I, I decided I wanted to be the person in the suit and not the person in the overalls. Um, not to say that disrespectfully at all, um, but I realised that perhaps there was something else out there for me. Um, college, I found a lot easier than school. Okay. I think when I was studying something that had a direct benefit to what I was doing, um, was a lot more enjoyable. And quite quickly, the grades were coming in very, very good. And always with that mindset of how can I be the person in the suit, I moved quite quickly from being on the tools to um, being in the design office and then doing my, my, my design qualifications, eventually leading and giving up work to, to go to university. Okay. Um, then I became a, a designer uh, of engineering systems, a, a, a project manager, um, team so leader. Very technical. Then. Very technical. I was I was a, a chartered engineer. Okay. Um, well before the time I came into to facilities and the operational arena. Um, I then um, went across to um, University of Warwick, which was my first client side role. Okay. Again, building services, project management. But as it was client-side and it involved operations, that was kind of the first step into what you would now call, or what I would now call facilities management. I wouldn't have called it then. Okay. Um, for that, from then I went to UCL, again, very initially as a, a, a project manager or a, a design consultant. So you were drawn to the city? Yeah, well, I was living in London and, oh, and okay. commuting to Warwick. Oh, it was a, a recession back then at the time, and... Um, 
whilst it was a fantastic place to work, and I think um, the higher education environments are absolutely amazing places to work, the travel was a bit much, um, living in London. Um, and then I became um, employed directly by the, the university and started working around uh, performance and quality improvement and quality measurement okay. and compliance. And then that then became um, facilities management. And I think a lot of people that work in the, oper the engineering operational arena may not have considered themselves to be facilities management. Um, and I certainly wasn't aware of it and, until that point. Um, but now, without a shadow of a doubt, I consider myself a facilities manager. Okay. And, and you were at um, UCL for about nine years. Is that right? Yeah, it was a, it was a fantastic place to, to work. Um, HE, um, I think, is, is one of the best places you can work client-side. Um, but there was a chap there, Jeff Prudence, who not only was my ultimate line manager and um, director, but also became a personal mentor, and he got me more interested in, in SIBSI, who I said before, the Chartered Institute of Building Services Engineers, and BIFM, who became IWFM, the yeah, Institute of it Workplace. Its name, didn't it? Yeah, Institute of Workplace and Facilities Management. And it was just through that transition that I saw myself perhaps less as an engineer and more as a, a facilities manager. Okay, so to get this my head around this is that you um, are a chartered institute for um, building services engineer, and you've been there for about 10 years in that plus and also the uh, Institute of Workplace and FM, yeah, um, which is probably less techy but more overall encompassing of the FM arena. Is that correct? Very much so. Um, SIBSI obviously represent the interests of building services engineers and promote the art and science of, of building services engineering, Okay, of which operational arena facilities management is one of them. Right. IWFM looks at facilities management as a whole, um, it's perhaps a little underrepresented on the, the hard FM side. Okay, I was going to say that because obviously the Chartered Institute of Building Services Engineers is more of the hard FM side. It is. And then there's, there's a third one that, that I'm involved with, which okay. is IHEM, which is the um, Institute of Healthcare um, Engineering and Estates Management. I've probably said that wrong because we just all call it IHEM. And they are also a professional engineering body but they they concentrate on on healthcare okay um all right i think i've got got my head around some of those acronyms <laughs> there so um because i know that uh public sector do love their acronyms but um so just moving on a little bit we can go back to that a little bit later but what is it you like about your fm role now now well at, at my level this is by far the the best job I've ever had. It's it's absolutely amazing. And I think that's be, because I'm surrounded by the best. I'm surrounded by a, a fantastic team, um, a fantastic client. Obviously, I am, I am client side, but all the people I serve are clients and they're all committed to what they do and they're, they're, they're passionate. But I think generally with regards to FM, what is it I like the most about it is, well, you can start at any level. Okay. With any level of experience, with any qualifications, and facilities management will hold you and support you and transform you essentially into what you ever want to be. Because we do all of the, everything from the basic level maintenance to the cleaning to the, the hospitality, you can start anywhere and progress your way up. So many people start as bar staff 
Yeah. Well, that's facilities management. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, control or delete. That's facilities management, and you can go up anywhere in, into FM, and then you can choose to qualify if you if you wish to do so. You can move around. It's a it's a fantastic organ. Well, sorry, a fantastic industry. I mean, it's an interesting thing you've touched upon, which actually our other um, podcast people didn't sort of touch upon, is that there are so many facets of facilities management um, where anyone that has a, if they have a propensity, let's say, for hospitality, that may be their bag. If they're a more of a techie person and like the hard FM, that may be their bag as well. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, but very much so. You've also got... Um, logistics, you've yep. got interior design, you've got um, landscaping, everything mm. um, exists. Portering, um, there's, there's nothing that you can really think of out there that doesn't touch facilities management, or importantly, that facilities management doesn't touch. Yeah. Uh, okay. And, uh, and I think that, I mean, you're, you're currently in a position with the East London um, NHS Foundation Trust. That's correct. Um, and that's quite a big trust and stretches quite a considerable way up to Luton and Bedfordshire, I think, as well. Yeah, we cover 500 square miles, give or take. So it's a, it's a big geographical area. Okay. Uh, um, and in terms of the number of um, buildings, is that, how, how many buildings would that encompass, would you say? So we, we as a trust have got, we've got over 100 buildings, but the, the NHS itself has got got thousands yes. I mean, it's got 1.2 million staff across the uk okay so but it's a very your, big organization in, but in your remit you have 100 buildings that come within your remit yeah we're 129 130 it okay. does it does change because as services develop um we take on more buildings sometimes we've got presence in other hospitals okay um as again our services and scope I develop see. I, I i see so I mean, the, the, the third question I had, I mean, it's pre it was pretty obvious, but uh, y your, your industry or sector is, is healthcare sector. Is that correct? It currently is. It's my first job within healthcare and then just showing that facilities really is um, truly, uh, you can really move your skills around. This is the first job I've ever had in, in healthcare. It's the first job I've ever had in healthcare estates management. And I'm the director of estates and um, facilities and capital development. Going on to my next question is that which skills are required for your job? Obviously, you've had a long background also in um, uh, higher education um, FM. Yeah. And now you're in healthcare. But if you were to sort of summarize or to say what, what skill sets, uh, what skills are required for your job um, now? Well, there's so many transferable skills that you, you can bring into, into facilities management. But the, the thing for me is a, is a genuine focus on the user experience and patient outcomes. And that means that you've got to have a, a, a true ability um, to listen and adapt to the environment and, and the events that you're, you're currently working within. Um, and certainly at, at my level, at the senior level within the organisation and within facilities, you've got to have a, an ability to be able to react to the new um, without getting stuck in the weeds, perhaps a, a view of strategic over-tactical, okay. because in an operational arena, there's so much of the tactical or so much of the incidents or so much of the change that's coming in on a daily basis, you need to be able to deal with that and react while still very much concentrating on the bigger picture. So, but now you are looking more from a higher level strategic 
point of view, but still with a, an eye on the, the daily operational things that come and hit your desk. Is that right? You have to. And I think every director of estates, regardless of the environment they work in, will still have that. You, We are a 24-7 operation, yeah. so there's going to be things that are happening overnight that you need to be aware of and be briefed in and ensure that you've got the, the team around you to be able to react and support to that. But you okay. still need that visibility of what's occurring on your estate. Okay. So putting myself in your shoes is that, you know, what would a typical day look like? Wow. Well, I, I suppose ask that of anybody and they might struggle to, to answer the question. But I think for a typical day for me is I need to, I need to try and bring in routine wherever I can so that I don't get stuck in the weeds. So I know what it is that I'm looking at. The day would obviously start with grabbing the phone straight away and seeing what's happened overnight. I think that's, that, that's the most important thing, seeing okay. if something has happened overnight that I so need to... So you would do that from first thing in the morning once you get up or when you enter the office or how would that happen? Pretty much my days end and start pretty much in the same way as just checking that nothing's immediately happened that I might need to, to react to. Um, but then when I've done that first thing, it's about getting out of the house and then either walking or cycling to work. Okay. I'm quite lucky even with an area as big as it is that we cover um i base myself out of two main areas and and they're both easily walkable um or cyclable um from home but then obviously i've got to get into the office or whichever building i'm working in for the day and it's about having those those morning briefings i'm going to quick look over trade press articles news um this week in fn twin fm do an absolute fantastic um daily and weekly updates so I, I always make sure I, I scan scan across that so that's really about being briefed about what's happening both in the sector um, as well as in the industry um, and then of course it's a plethora of meetings visits report writing presentations etc um, throughout the day most often there'll be something in the evening okay. um, I, I network um, you are a very busy chap I like getting out, um, and I don't know if there's a question later on about what's the best way to, to, to network with me, and it's not to send me an email telling me about your business, asking if you can come and have a cup of coffee. It's meeting me at a networking event, getting out, seeing other people, and having those um, more casual conversations yeah. as opposed to just hitting us with e the amount of emails that I think anybody in my position gets is huge. You can't read them all. You can't react to them all. Um, so, yeah, getting out and networking is my way of, of meeting suppliers, consultants, and other um, professionals. I mean, it's an interesting thing. So, okay, let's say you're faced with a typical day and you've got 100 emails. How do, how do you manage those emails? Do they just not get read? So it's about routine. Um, so if I'm um, – I can't believe I'm saying this. So if I'm CC'd in an email, it automatically goes into a separate box. So I never see my CC emails. I read them maybe daily, most often than not weekly. If I'm CC'd, my belief is you just want me to be aware of something. Okay. So I'll generally never reply to a CC'd email. Correct. If yeah. it's a purchase order I need to approve, automatically gets filtered into another box, which I look at that just um, weekly, um, daily or weekly. If it's... Um, an email from Central, so I can I know if emails from NHS England or other things are coming in. 
that gets automatically filtered into a different email box. So when I'm at my computer, I can see all these email boxes and I can see the numbers going up. If I'm on my phone, unless I choose to look at them, I just see my inbox. So I see the type of things. And if I can see it's from a supplier or, um, or I can see it's nobody I've got any contact with, I may look at it. Um, I may not. I may just swipe left and, and delete. If it's something I need to deal with, I move it back to unread. And my rule is 50. So I'll have a maximum of 50 unread emails because that means there's 50 I've got to do okay. something with. So that's my, that's my routine of how I control my email Gosh. box. I would imagine, obviously, in the NHS, there would be a lot of those um, e emails coming in on a need to know or be aware of and the CC ones. So I, I, I hear what you're saying. Um, I just wonder what sort of thing I would put in the subject line to be on the top of the list there. That's all. I'm trying to think, but even if I could, I wouldn't say it in a podcast. <laughs> okay, th thank you for that. Um, so what would, what would you say, um, David, to um, someone um, by way of advice if they were starting um, their career off in uh, the FM uh, sector or, or area arena, as it were? Uh, network, okay. network, But network. networking, you know, I'm a young graduate, let's say. How am I going to network? Where am I going to go? So there's industry events. I think that's the key thing to learn, and the majority of them are free, um, and you can find out about them free. So IWFM, CIBSE, RICS, IHEAM, they all put on events. They're all advertised. Okay. Um, they're generally free to attend. Yeah. They're in all of the major cities. A huge amount of them are, are in London, um, and they're often based upon some kind of CPD. Okay. So there will be some kind of presentation or lecture. Yeah. It could be supplier-based. Um, so imagine that um, Hawkey Cleaning and Supplies are, are, are presenting one. You will talk about new cleaning techniques, perhaps. You might give a little bit of presentation on yourself. You might bring somebody else in to talk. And then there's networking afterwards. Okay, That's the difficult bit. The difficult bit is the networking and not to shrink into the, into the background. So if I was somebody new coming up, I would try and make it right. If I'm going somewhere and this is something I've done, I want to speak to three people mm -hmm. because I'm quite shy and introverted. And if I, now I, I can't know, believe that, David. <laughs> now if I if I go to an event, I the chances are high I know a few people there, so the conversation becomes easy. But okay. when I go to an event, I don't, or maybe a work event because obviously we've got ten thousand staff, so yeah, you know, I don't necessarily know everybody. I will try and speak to at least three people. And you kind of force yourself into that situation, three new people. You do, and you, you prepare just some, some pre-questions. That's what chit-chat for me is all about, just preparing. What am I going to say to somebody I don't know? And if you work in business development, David, you obviously have a patter yourself. And I'm quite sure Ethan's got a, got a patter as well of how you start that conversation. But somebody new into the industry, that's, that's what very much I would, I would recommend. And... You've got to get this ability of having a conversation. Yes. Because if you work in FM, even back of house, FM is not about the buildings. It's about the people. And therefore, you need to have these people skills and you need to develop those people skills. So get out there and start introducing yourself. So in the workplace, you're very, very easy to, to communicate with and you're very comfortable having conversations with, with people. So that would yeah. be my, 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 my biggest event, continual learning. Get to events, do the networking, join an institution, progress, develop, um, 
And I've said it before about suppliers. You know, if you wanted to get into FM or a different area, go to these events, register. It's, they're free to attend. They're advertised yeah. openly. Turn up. Yeah, I think I think that's a very sound piece of advice to uh, many of our listeners um, in terms of getting out there and networking. Um, to it's, I suppose it's a bit like a, a trainee lawyer would go and sit in a courtroom and and watch a watch a particular um, uh, a verdict or something like that. So, but this is the same type of thing. Ultimately, obviously, um, the these uh, young uh, young people coming through facilities management will eventually have to have those. Um, interpersonal skill sets to become managers, directors, and stuff, and managing a team of people. Quite. So it's not wasted um, skill sets in terms of getting out there and stuff. So now, now moving on, just looking specifically at facilities management, um, where we are today, um, has the way facilities management changed over the years? I think you'll probably get this 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 answer from from a lot of people that that you that you interview. But but COVID overnight changed how FMs operate, and more importantly, how FMs can can impact a business, real estate, and workplace uses has completely changed. Correct. So then FMs have had to adapt to that. The technological changes that we've seen over the last decade and the next decade are all going to affect what we do as humans, let alone what we do. Um, in in the workplace, and that strategic and commercial contribution that facilities managers can make to an organisation, I think, has been completely transformed um, since since COVID. Yes, and now with workplaces, I think perhaps they need to churn and restack and change a lot more than they used to, and relying on your FM to to kind of have that skill set. And you mentioned earlier on, BIFM changed their name to the Institute of Workplace and Facilities Management. That focus on human well-being and staff and visitor well-being over just facilities management and that shift to workplace over FM has been, I think, one of the biggest changes. And then I suppose, finally, it's got to be about the data and that links to the technological changes. Okay, Data's the new oil, um, nothing more. There's nothing more important than than the use of of your property and your assets to an organization's success. And having that solid understanding of your data is so important, regardless of the size of your organization. Understanding your data, how your assets are used, how your assets contribute to the organization and to the success of the organization has never been more important than it than it is now, I would suggest. Okay. I mean, I'm going to push you a little bit on this one, is that, what well, I mean, with the, obviously with the NHS, it is a very um, big, uh, let's say, monster to turn and change and develop and stuff. Um, and obviously, it's very. Uh, it, there is a lot of inpatient care and things. So, has it had to? I mean, it doesn't. Obviously, it can't adapt to hybrid working because you've got patients there twenty four hours a day and things like that. So, you're saying it's more looking at the data on how the space is being used rather than how uh, maybe your office space is being used or. Or what's how, how has it changed? Basically, what I'm trying to get at is that how has it changed significantly 
quickly because NHS doesn't move quickly, as you know, in certain changes and stuff. So how has it been able to do that? It really moved very, very quickly in COVID. Okay, yeah. You know, we, we had to, to massively change our, our, our functional and our digital offer. Um, and, and how that happens. But there are 219 trusts in the UK. Okay. So I think you use the term big monster, not necessarily the, the, the term I would use. But you've got 219 trusts governed and ran by 42 integrated care systems which which procure the services through the trust. So you, you, you've got that change at, at local level. Okay. But yes, there's, there's, there's hybrid working. And yes, lots of people now work differently to how they used to work, and, and COVID has, has facilitated that. But it's also really helped with recruitment. Right. So somebody now that I've got new members of staff that, that live in, in Dudley and down in Bognor Regis and across to Chelmsford, because they don't have to be based near the office. Okay. Clearly, there's a need for them to be in at times. Right. Um, but there's some roles, maybe help desk staff, where you don't need to be in the office permanently. Okay. And the NHS, or, or certainly my um, area of the NHS, is really looking at how we can, we can develop that. But face-to-face is important, and we are moving away from Teams meetings to face-to-face meetings. Okay, great. But I get a lot more done by Teams, and I know I'm more productive than Teams, but it's not just about your productivity. You have to be face-to-face. You have to be visible. So you might see yourself as having less work done if you're going out for face-to-face meetings, but that human contact that we all get from work has to be considered as equally important as productivity. Okay, yeah, I, I, I hear what you're saying on that. Um, now, now, you mentioned about COVID um, and how obviously we live in a different world now post-COVID and whilst it's still ongoing, we're learning to have to live with it. Do you think um, COVID and the way that we work has kept, um, let's say, suppliers like ourselves, Hawkey Cleaning and Support Services, um, and procurers more at arm's length than before? Well, my experience is we work a lot more closer than, than we used to before. If any of my suppliers are listening to this, I, I really do hope they agree. Um, but we couldn't have survived through COVID in the HE sector or the NHS um, sector or the healthcare sector, sorry, without our supply chain. Okay. You know, we, we couldn't have done what we had to do, the, the change and the churn we, we, we've had to make in estates and in digital without our service partners right. um, has meant that we're working a lot more closely together, aligning our strategic objectives, um, which we do through procurement, of course, and working really closely together. For, for me, the partners are an essential part of my team. Um, I hate saying my team, our team. Um, and when I talk about the numbers that work in estates, I'm not talking necessarily about the directly employed. Right. I'm talking about our service partners, yeah. their staff, and we all contribute to the same thing. I hear what you're saying, and uh, no, that's a very, very, very good point. Um, so mo- moving on just on this, this question is, how important are um, equality, um, so, uh, equality social E ESG um, issues affecting today's procurement decisions? So I think from a, a procurement decision point of view, ESG, so that kind of environmental, social and, and, and governance, are, are extremely important. And they're probably 
as important as sector experience. And okay. I think that's important for a procurement decision because it's hard to break into a new environment. It's hard to break in with a, a new client in a, in a different sector. Okay. So you may not have direct experience of working within, within um, wards um, or within uh, care homes, but you've got great experience of cleaning student bedrooms or hotels. Um, so there's a lot of lined experience, but having good, solid ESG and how an organization truly operates mm -hmm. is a really important part of um, procurement decision making. And how else can you evidence that other than good, solid um, ESG um, values? And you can do that at any level. You okay. don't have to be a huge organization to have a good, solid, um, reliable and authentic um, attitude towards ESG. Okay, thank, thank you for that. Um, and, and obviously, um, ESG comes up a lot in um, pre-qualification questionnaires and things like that from a supplier's point of view. So it does score very highly uh, on, on that. It has to. And if you say it, you have to prove it. Yes. That's it for, from my perspective. And fundamentally, I think, if you've got ESG right, then you've got the governance of your, your business right. Yeah. And you're focusing on, on the right areas. And as an employee of one of these organizations, then, you know, you really do have to live the ESG values. And as an employer, you want to make sure your employees do and, and, and truly do to mm -hmm. be successful, I would suggest. Definitely. Um, it's not a question here, but it's a question that I just thought of um, on our acronyms whilst we're on them, um, is the um, EDI. Um, in terms of um, equality, diversity and inclusion. So how do you think um, the FM industry, and this I've fired this as a, I understand that I haven't briefed you on this one, but um, how do you think the FM industry has uh, embraced EDI uh, well, over the last few years? I think the first thing, and I think I would now say equity, diversity and inclusion as opposed to equality. So giving okay. everybody uh, a, a, an equitable opportunity. And that means that some will obviously have more assistance than others. But I think facilities management has got to be the most diverse sector within the workplace. Okay. Because if you look at all of the, the, the people that, that we employ from domestics through to, to boardroom, or as we say it, from ward to board, um, and looking at that as a whole has got to be the most diverse um, employment organization that, that 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 you can have or not even organization sector i think so how has facilities grasped it? i think that they've really grasped it and, and, and i think that that we have to mm -hmm. um because bottom line fm's about people yes and if you're providing a facility service be it as as an in-house or an external or um simply as an employee um you've got to be looking after your people and you can't do that without a good um edi framework and again i think you can have that at any level if you're a small organization with four or five people on your board you could still have a meeting once a quarter where the agenda is edi where you go through what the metrics are um what targets you're going to set yourself and how you can advertise what you do so it's not just a tick box definitely not if it was it's but you're talking of metrics. So yeah. does, is it necessary to demonstrate those metrics? Yeah, because data's king. So okay. um, you, you, if you say you've got to prove it, 
So the thing is, you've got to be authentic mm -hmm. in everything that you do. And yes, it's important because you commented earlier on that it's pretty much on every single um, tender submission now, be it private or, or public or even third sector experience. And now I think it's 90% of companies report on sustainability. Yeah, I mean, it, it does get a lot of waiting now. And um, I am also aware that the um, East London NHS Foundation Trust, I mean, your, your, your three key words are care, respect, and inclusivity. Quite correct. Um, which is commendable. Um, and it's truly believed. That's what I said right at the beginning about working with great people yeah. on my client side as well as within my team. And I don't think I've worked in an organization before where that is so apparent. Those, those three values are so apparent and go through the entire organization. So if you were to compare it then with the working in the uh, higher education, would you say that it's, it's better Personally, I, I find my role better, but I was at UCL for nine years and they're an amazing, fantastic employer okay. that really, really focus on the student experience and okay. providing the best education. But for me, this is the first organization I've been in where I can see the values um, transitioning through every member of staff that I engage with. Okay, thank you for that. So how important are sustainability issues with a supplier that you work with? I suppose we, we, we kind of link that to, to the previous comments. That, yeah. Well, first of all, sustainability is more than just uh, net zero carbon. Correct. It's about business-focused sustainability and sustainable business practices, not just focusing on the environmental aspect of sustainability. Um, but, of course, they're important because sustainability, decarbonisation and, and NZC – they're global issues across all of society. So as a business, if you're not embracing that and doing what you can to, to tackle it, mm -hmm. you're not going to be particularly successful. I think your employees going to really want to continue working for an organization that doesn't truly um, support sustainable and sustainable business practices in all that it does. And it must be part of your decision-making process. It's not the race to the bottom. And even as an organization that you, I imagine, you, you buy so how you buy, you must have a sustainability measure from which when you buy your products. We do. I mean, what, what's interesting, though, is that some of the targets for the NHS, I seem to remember reading, were not as ambitious as they could have been. Well, we've um, got to be... Um, there was one, wasn't, I remember reading something, a 2050 target. So the, the one that we're working to is 2040. Okay. So, so 2040. It's quite a long way off. It's quite a long way off, but we need to be 80% um, by uh, 2028. Okay. Do you think the NHS is wasteful? Um, I don't think any more than any other organisation. I think we're acutely aware of if there is waste, where it is. Um, and no, I, I don't think the NHS is wasteful. What what would you say, David, um, is your biggest regret in your career to date? <laughs> None that I'd care to admit on here, I don't think. Um, but but mistakes are, are learning opportunities, and and they're, they're essential to to career and and, and development. Um, I'm sure when 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 I'm about to meet my maker, I, I might regret the hours that that I've worked, and um, I might possibly regret not retiring enough early enough. Um, but I'm really happy in, in, in what I do now. I've made mistakes, definitely. There was, when What's I was the a regret, design... though? What would you say? I mean, you know, the fact that you acknowledge it, it's a good thing, um, but there must be you know, so, something. 
I wish I'd done that differently. As a regret, you know, I really enjoy the job that I've got now. So could I have done it earlier? Could I have done it quicker? As as a as a junior design engineer, okay, I moved around a lot, and you still see that repeated. And perhaps now I regret having moved around so much, chasing like the odd extra couple of thousand. Um, so I would certainly have done it differently. So maybe I, I regret that now. But at the time, in the moment, did I regret it? Well, well, of course not. It was it, it, it was a decision um, that I made, and you know, I'm, I'm generally happy at work, and and that really helps. But perhaps I could have got into the operational arena a little bit earlier, okay? Because I really enjoy FM, and there's this there's there's, there's a saying I think, or there's a metric, and it's called the the one ten two hundred principle. So if you spend one pound on building a building you're going to spend £10 on maintaining it and £200 operating it from a business operation expense like staff, etc. So taking that, say, for the shard, so the shard costs £1 and, you know, it's yeah. going to cost 10 times that to operate it. Would I rather manage and operate the shard or have built it? I'm going to have more impact on the use of that building and the energy efficiency of that building over its entire lifetime and its churn and its restack by operating it. So, yeah, perhaps I could have got into it slightly earlier. Okay. I mean, it's an interesting theme, that, because some of our other um, uh, podcast um, uh, people actually had a similar thing where they wanted to be involved a lot earlier in aspects of their career. So mm. um, it's an interesting thing. So I would say to our listeners is that um, don't leave it too late. Um, no, So that no. You, you don't have so many or have any regrets um, and embrace your mistakes. You're going to make yeah, them. of course. Just don't hide them. No. Um, David, so what is now on a sort of flip side, what is the greatest achievement in your career to date? Oh, there's been so many. But, but, <laughs> but the, the, the greatest, so not having had a successful school life, um, when I graduated the first time, I can still remember crying when I got my um, results. And even now I'm getting emotional, you know, really struggling with maths at school okay and then getting a degree which had so a maths math element yeah, yeah yeah engineering and maths you know they, they go hand in hand so i've got three university degrees now which i'm extremely proud of getting chartered so becoming chartered was definitely a, a, an achievement for me to to know that the industry had validated my career and experience to say yeah you're good enough now to to be chartered and then becoming fellow so becoming fellow of uh, of my institutions, and because you're on judging panels and everything, aren't you? Yeah, I like to be active. You know, I know people say, "Oh, I want to give back." I'm not sure that's the phrase I, I I want to use, but I can't bring anything else to mind. But I enjoy my industry, mm -hmm. and I I really want to help people succeed in in, in the industry. Um. And judging, and then because you judge, you can advise people on what to write on the judging things, and you can help people grow and develop. And of course, the benefit of judging is you go to the awards ceremony. So you know, there's always a bit of a why are you doing? Well, I get to go to the awards ceremony, not not not, not buy a ticket, mm. and then network with all of those people. Oh, there's a lot of networking at those uh, events, I'm I'm sure, and it's uh, good. I think you also get the impression you quite like mentoring people as well. And seeing people going, getting through their career and things like that, I think, um, which which is which is which is excellent. So I, I do both. So, so I I have mentors. 
I have mentees and I do reverse mentoring as well, where a, a junior underrepresented member of my organization, I'm the mentee and, and they men- mentor me on what their lived experience is and what their work life is like. Okay. Um, what as a 50 year old white gay man, I should know about their life and how it's like for them to work in an organization. Right. So it's almost you're, you're getting there to the shop floor and, and, and getting down with it. Yes, but somebody that's underrepresented, somebody that's underrepresented in the organization that's got a lived experience that what I could empathize. Um, so my um, mentee is um, a, a, a black female. Okay. Um, of course, I've got no experience of what it's like as, a, as an immigrant black female working within nursing within... East London, being a single mother, a lot of that I've just generalised just to give an example. But I could, I, I could assume that I could know what it's like for them. Okay. But without that direct contact and without being told to go away and read this book and go away and understand this or go away and watch that film, um, I, I would never have, have thought that. Okay. So uh, that, that lady... Um, she she's not in the FM side though. She's a no, nurse. Uh, no. She's, so it's no. on a completely different aspect of the yes. Of the healthcare. And it's important that they're not within your line of responsibility oh, okay. as see. well. Yeah. Okay. So and um, and what things in life? I mean, you mentioned you're you know quite a workaholic and stuff, and you'd like to reti- uh, not like to retire, but like to have some uh, downtime and leisure time as well. But what things in life, work or leisure, gives you the greatest satisfaction and, and enjoyment? Well, I'm certainly not a workaholic, but I enjoy my job. Okay. Um, so I imagine perhaps what everybody would say, obviously family, travel, food, and, and walking the dog on the, the, the beach in the morning. We're lucky enough to have a house um, out of London as well. Um, when I'm down there, um, walking the dog, and we, we're down there most weeks. So, so that is absolutely great just to switch off. And I don't know how anybody could not enjoy being on a beach, even if it's 7 a.m. and it's chucking it down. <laughs> And the dog's ears are blowing against the wind. I'm not convinced on that one, but... I, it's yeah, still I an amazing it. place to be. But what else... <clears throat> get the, so seeing others exceed and helping others develop okay. um, and succeed, I, it gives me great, great joy. And I really enjoy the networking. And as I think you've mentioned, I do sit on a number of boards and, and those are voluntary positions. And I really enjoy contributing to that. And I'm very grateful that I've got I've got employers that... I've always supported that. So that blended work, that blended thing of work and social, um, again, just makes work a little bit more enjoyable than it perhaps it could be for others. Thank you very much for that. Um, I don't have any more questions, actually, and I think it's been very, very engaging. So that's actually the end of our uh, podcast, Wear Many Hats. Um, we hope you found it interesting uh, to listen to. We'd like to thank uh, David Stevens for taking the chair today. Um, it has been, uh, yet again, thought-provoking and engaging. Um, we welcome your support and feedback from our listeners. Thank you once again, David. Thank you so much for having me.